Good morning, everybody that is here in person and online. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, I also work as a pastoral resident at Hope, and I am also on our LDI, Leadership Development Institute. I work with Trek One men and help out with a little bit with the Trek Two people there as well. Uh, and online, thanks for joining us. Thanks for always sticking it out and, and being faithful to, to come and join us online. And for those in person, uh, yeah, it was cold today, so thanks for being here. Uh, if you are online and you're not planning on going anywhere and your car is parked outside, just give it, run it for 15 minutes. Just give it a little breathing room. Today it's cold out and they need that. So I wanted to ask, what was your first CD? If you're online, Throw a comment in the chat. What was the first CD you purchased? Uh, I know this is geared to some more of a millennial question, so uh, forgive that. But mine was Spice Girls, as you can tell, uh, Spice World. And I got that in fifth grade. I was, uh, it was back to school shopping. I needed to know what all the cool kids were listening to. It happened to be Spice Girls at the time. So I needed this CD. Um, and, and I just want to highlight then with that some of the top jams of the 90s. I know Andrew just left the room, but he would love this list, I'm sure. No Rain, Blind Melon. Hopefully you're hearing these in your head if you do know them. Again, it's more of a millennial list. I Want It That Way, The Backstreet Boys, Wonderwall. What's going on? That's one of my faves. No Scrubs, classic. And then Losing My Religion, REM. So it's some great, there's so many I left off this list. But uh, the reason why I bring those up is, is about nostalgia. I want to talk about nostalgia a little bit. And and this, this is a definition from Merriam-Webster, just this idea of, of being homesick, a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for return to or some past period of, or irrecoverable condition. We, we all feel this, nostalgia. We're longing, we're yearning for something. You know, that's what the thinking of those songs, they bring up feelings, they bring up emotions. When I listen to I Want It That Way, there's some level of joy I get. I don't know why. The Backstreet Boys, man, it gets me. But it's nostalgia. It's awakening something in us, a callback to a, a condition we remember. Uh, perhaps you had some nostalgia for Taco Bell after last week's sermon where Brian compared Jesus to a burrito. Go back and watch that if you don't get that reference. But I know I talked to at least a couple of people and I also ate Taco Bell this week. So Brian's sermon partly took effect. Um, where are we? We're in Jesus is greater. We're, we're looking at the book of Hebrews. And actually today we've got a warning, a bit of a warning for us. And so we're in chapter three and we're going to actually look at the whole chapter um, going back to the six verses that Brian preached on last week. Um, and if you, if you could have an open Bible, we'll have the words on the screen for Hebrews. We're going to actually go through the whole chapter. But first, I wanted to look at where we've been. And so we've gotten through now. We're into the third chapter of Hebrews. And we've already seen that Jesus, in, right away, is the greater message from God. Here comes Jesus. And God had previously spoken through the prophets. And now he's speaking through his son. Uh, that Jesus is greater than the angels, as the creator is greater than the creature. He's the greater king that one day all things will be under his feet. He is our, as Brian preached on, our greater brother. That he had to become like us in order that we might become like him. So that we have this doctrine of the incarnation of this fully God and fully human united in the one person of Christ. And then he's greater than death and the devil. That Jesus actually defeats death 
on, on in his life, death, and resurrection, and he, he gains victory over the devil, a victory that has begun already now. And then last week, we looked at Jesus greater than Moses. That Moses is this, is this great prophet of the Old Testament, this mediator for God's people, this leader of God's people. And the author of Hebrews is saying, he's just in the house. Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is the master of the house. He's the one who builds the house. And that's our passage. So we're going to look at, I'm just going to read all of Hebrews chapter 3, and then we're going to come back and make comments as we go. So starting in verse one, actually, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And now we get to our passage. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were those who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And so that's our passage. We get this warning. And, and we start off right away. Jesus is greater than Moses. So, and now we get this interesting verse. Right at the beginning of the warning that he's going to give. And he's going to use a quotation from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 back in the Old Testament, which is actually now, this is a little quoteception, quoting and calling to mind what happened in the book of Numbers, which we'll look at. But the beauty of that is right here, the author of Hebrews is saying, so as the Holy Spirit says, when we come to the Bible, we have, with the scriptures, we have God's word. We have one biblical storyline. Here in the New Testament, after Christ, we're able to look back to the Old Testament and that word is relevant for us today. So when we, when we need to hear the voice of God, and I know there's different traditions that go about it different ways, but I think we're right here when we say, if you want to hear the voice of God, you go to the scriptures. Because we have this author in other places telling us, 
as the Holy Spirit says. When we talk about this in our hermeneutics class, it's just a big word for how to read the Bible. We teach a class on every year. We call the Holy Spirit the big A author of the Bible, capital A. And then we have little a authors like Paul or this author to the Hebrews. And their personality gets to shine through. It's actually brought more out because the Holy Spirit is working in them to inspire the scriptures. So when we come to the scriptures, God is speaking to us. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. Same God, same story, and the Holy Spirit is the one ensuring that. So this word then becomes relevant for us. And it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. So we get this warning. It starts off right there. Today, there seems to be a period of time, and Brian will get into more of that next week, but there seems to be a period of time where there's a window of opportunity. And the opportunity is to hear and respond or to hear and reject. And so the author calls us back to now to the history of Israel and, and to Numbers chapter 14. And sometimes it's helpful with some of these books, especially early in the Bible, it's just confusing. To grab an outline, I just grabbed one from an online study Bible. And the passage that, that Psalm 95 and Hebrews are kind of referring to here comes in the middle of uh, the book of Numbers. And Israel has been brought out. They're preparing to enter the promised land. And just for a little context, God promised that he would give a land and offspring to Abraham, that he would bless Abraham. And through all nations, then all nations would be blessed through Abraham. And then, but he also warned Abraham that his people were going to be slaves in Egypt. And that's what happened. They moved down to Egypt and they became slaves. And God came and delivered them out of bondage, out of the house of slavery, and out of under Pharaoh's rule. He delivered them. That's Exodus is the big story of the Old Testament. That's what we're referring to here. And he brought them through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, this great deliverance. And he's bringing them into the land of promise. And when we get to Numbers, they're on the edge of the land of promise. But Israel's track record in the wilderness was not very strong. And this is a very long list, I'm sorry. But I wanted to highlight just some of, in just a few short chapters, the escalation of Israel's rebellion. So in, in Numbers 11, they're just complaining about their hardships. We don't like what, what's happening to us. The next thing is, is they're craving other food. They're, they're complaining about God's provision and they, to the point that they falsely remember how things were in Egypt. Think of all the food we had, the salmon and, and all these things that we were eating in Egypt. They're misremembering their former oppression. To the point that Aaron and, Aaron and Miriam now grumble against Moses. And God vindicates Moses and says, I speak with him face to face. He is my prophet. When you hear from him, you're hearing from me. And then the spies go into the land and they come back and they give a falsely negative report. They exaggerate. They forget the Lord's promise that he had promised to be faithful and give them the land. And they strike fear in the people because the people listen to them and their fear is incited. To the point now in Numbers 14, the whole community rebels and desires to reverse the exodus and go back to Egypt. Now this is a big deal. Return to Egypt. That's a big deal. That's where they were delivered from. 
They get nostalgia for Egypt. They're yearning to go back. God, we just want to go back. There was great food there. We want to be back under Pharaoh. We want to be making bricks with straw. We want to go back. Why? Why did they get there? How did they get to the point in Exodus 15, they're delivered through the Red Sea and they sing a song of praise. They're dancing and they're praising to this point of rebellion. Rebellion does not happen in a vacuum. If you think about if you work with your hands, if you do like exercise or manual labor or uh, gardening, all different things, you can develop calluses, right? And that's this idea. Israel's heart developed a callus toward God. It hardened. They forgot their deliverance. They forgot how God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They didn't trust his provision. They grumbled about it. They didn't believe his promises. They, they became more and more fearful ultimately to their rebellion became a rejection of God themselves. One of the big questions and the prophet Jeremiah is, has God asked, has a nation changed its gods? It's unheard of. And yet my people have rejected me. And so we see then God say, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So we got to deal with this passage. I didn't have the slide, but each one of those numbers, rebellions, is met with a just and wrathful response from God. And we've got to deal with God's wrath in the Bible. We've got to see it. And, and oftentimes in the scriptures, God's wrath is depicted as giving people what they want, giving them over to what they're demanding. You think about Romans 1 and the great picture of the Bible story. And that's what they're depicted. That's what's depicted that God's doing. And here the people didn't want God's rest. So he allowed them to cement their rejection of him. And that was his wrath on them. But we have to see the grace too. We have to see that there's grace as well. That God is going to bring in the second generation who, if we go back to that slide there's a reason number six is et cetera, because Israel does not stop rebelling. And yet God is going to faithfully bring in the second generation. Tom Schreiner writes, The Lord's wrath against his people was provoked by their continual wandering from him, by their failure to trust and rely on him. His anger reached a point where he took an oath, pledging that they would not enter his rest. The rest here refers to the land of Canaan that was promised to Israel in fulfillment of the covenant enacted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The text alludes again to Numbers 14, where we were looking. The Lord said they would never see the land I swore to their fathers, and I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in. The promise would be fulfilled for a later generation, but the wilderness generation would not enjoy the land since they rebelled against the Lord. So the author of Hebrews is going back, calling back to this passage. And, and this happens a lot in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to continue as we preach through the series to try and highlight what the author of Hebrews is specifically doing when he's using or she is using the Old Testament. But right here, the author wants us to see the severity of the situation. We need to be seriously considering how they rebelled. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That because there's a greater rest coming, 
The window of opportunity is there. And now that Christ has come, that window of opportunity is cemented. So we need to seriously consider this warning. So we go back now to this end of our passage. And it says, again, recapping everything. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? And we have to see this. So, they, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It seems like the author of Hebrews really wants us to center on this word of unbelief and this concept of unbelief. And so we get this pattern of unbelief. We see it in their, in their pattern. I think we can relate to this. Grumbling against God and his word. I don't like what you've provided. I don't like what you're asking me to do. Which leads to sin. Which leads to more of a prolonged disobedience and ultimately a heart hardened in unbelief. I was thinking about a good illustration for unbelief. And it's kind of like that ice you get on your windshield of your car. And I'm not talking about like normal snowfall and you can scrape off. You know the ice though that you just, whatever you do, you cannot get it off until it fully melts. And only then can you start to move it and it even slides in large chunks. Just that bitter ice. It's near impossible to get off. I'm triggering some of us who maybe drove here today if you had ice in your car. Um, But what about us though? Do we grumble about God's provision, about what he's asking us to do? Do we grumble against his word? Do we listen to people who instill fear in us? Is there sin that we long to go back to? And so we have to ask why. So as the Holy Spirit says, we get this, this bookend, you know, he's, the beginning of the, of the passage, we get, so the Holy Spirit says, and we get this warning, and then at the end of the passage, we get the same warning. So we've got to go to the, what's the books? What are in between those bookends of warning? And so we look to this. Verses 12 through 15, where it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So why this warning? Don't let what happened to them happen to you. And I want to frame it this way. Fight until the end for the greater love. I think this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. Loving Jesus is greater. Great things are worth fighting for. You think about great relationships, friendships, marriages. It's worth working through things, forgiving, moving toward Great things are always worth fighting for. And the author of Hebrews wants us to fight until the end for the greater love by being aware of idolatry, false worship that pulls our hearts away. Fighting sin, resisting the the desire to test God and to grumble. We've got to beware of unbelief. In other words, as it says, guard our hearts. We've got to guard our hearts. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
One of the ways we can understand the New Testament in particular is we get these, this idea of things that are called imperatives. There's indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are who you are. And imperatives are what you must do now because of who you are. And this is only, there hasn't been a lot so far in Hebrews, but here's one. See to it. It's the same verb or word in Greek that's used in, at the beginning of chapter 3. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Take care. See to it. We're supposed to guard our hearts. The call is to guard our hearts. And Brian asked this last week. He asked this as a second accountability question. He said, what is it that consumes my thoughts? What is it about the world that tempts me to loosen my grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of the great people in the early church, Augustine, said, you are what you love. You know, and if you're, if you're tuning in or maybe in here, if you're a non-believer joining us today, this passage really isn't written to non-believers. It's really a call to people who have trusted Christ. But yet, if you had to ask yourself this question, if you had to ask, what do I serve? What do I hope in? What do I long for? What do I really think will save me? What do I give my energy to? That's what you worship. That's what your heart serves. And we get this complex picture of the heart in the Bible. And I, uh, this is from a book called The Enemy Within. We go through with our year one interns uh, in LDI. But, but this, this book, The Enemy Within, he outlines the heart is, is often referred to by many different things. It can be our mind, our thoughts, plans, judgment, discernment. It can be choices and actions we make with our will. It can be our affections, our longings, our desires, the things that repulse us our imagination, our feelings. And it can be our conscience, our sense of right and wrong, which approves or condemns our mind, will, and affections. We have our heart. And it's complex. It's our mind, our will, our affections, what we really love. To the point that if you tell me what you do or where you spend your money, I'd be able to tell you what you really love. Other ways the Bible talks about the heart. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Proverbs tells us, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We could see the heart pictured as a, as a throne. That, and then we get this idea of there's something always vying to sit on that throne. Something always wants our energy and our service and our hope and our belief. That a heart is, our heart's like a void. It's demanding something to either pursue or indulge in. Something always wants the throne of your heart. And the author of Hebrews is telling us to guard it. For example, I, I, one of the things that seeks the throne of my heart is approval. I want people to think highly of me. So I will try and say things that make me sound smarter. If in a meeting, if I make a comment that I think was embarrassing, I'll think about it for a day. That's, show, that's me showing that I'm not serving Christ. I'm not loving Jesus. I'm loving approval. I want people's approval. Our hearts are complex and, and no one can serve two masters, as Christ says. So we have to guard our hearts. How do we do that? Verse 13 particularly says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The first thing we have to see is we have to guard our heart against sin's deceitfulness. That sin lies. 
Go back to Genesis 3, to the, to the beginning of sin. And what you see there is the serpent tells a lie to Eve. God's holding back from you. God's holding something back. He knows that when you eat of this fruit, it's going to open your eyes. You're going to be wise. She never felt that way. But later, I believe it's in verse 6, she looks at the fruit and says, the fruit was desirable to make one wise. That was the lie. She didn't think that before the lie. And now she looks at that fruit. She was deceived. And Adam as well. Sin deceives. So how do we fight the deception of sin? Encourage one another daily. We can't read this like individualists. This is a call to community. And I hope we do it in small groups. As Brian mentioned, this is a picture from the summer. We've just formed a new small group in the summer, late, late fall maybe actually. And so we were social distance in my backyard. It's kind of hard to see. Uh, but it's the only picture I have of our small group right now because we're a newer group. Uh, and, and we're taking new members, by the way, Wednesday night. So if you're not in a small group, lowertownathopecc.com. Get, email, get an email in. But this small group, even though we're new and we're clunky and we're figuring it out and we're growing in relationship with one another from a distance, has already been a resting place for my heart and a heart check for me as well. That I can go into accountability and say, guys, this is really hard. Here's a way sin's trying to deceive me. Here's a way I'm tempted to not follow Christ. And they can put God's word in front of me and hold me accountable and remind me of truth. We fight together. This is a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. That's how we resist sin's deceitfulness in community. When, and here's the hard thing. In my time as a follower of Christ, I've probably seen more people walk away from Christ than I've seen come to Christ. And one of the things that always happens when people walk away from Christ is they walk away from community. We need community. This is a team sport to resist sin's deceitfulness. But we got to get to some good news too. So here's the good news. This is the good news in this passage. Here's the indicative. Here's the who we are. Why fight sin? Why guard our hearts? Why be in community? Because we have come to share in Christ. The beginning of the chapter says we share in a heavenly calling. Holy brothers and sisters. We call back to chapter 2 that Christ is not ashamed of us because we come from the same. We are called holy brothers and sisters. We profess Christ, as Brian said last week. We have stake in him. He is ours. What he gets, we get. If we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We've been given the eyes of faith. We've been given the ability to see Christ. Now we have to fight for that. Because where we place our conviction really matters. And we have to ask, what is our original conviction? And this is why it matters and why we read it again, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The reason it matters that Jesus is greater than Moses is because the cross has happened. Because Christ is the true mediator. Christ 
is the true builder of the house. Moses gave the law, but Jesus gives us his life. He's the true prophet. Moses spoke face to face with God. Jesus is the face of God. And it's faith, not works, that saves us. You can't save yourself by the law. You need Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you have it. You share in him. Don't give that up. But what about, maybe you're coming in and you're saying, I feel hard-hearted. I, sometimes I question if I'm even in. Do I even belong to Christ? Can I fall away? Or maybe you just have that one thing that keeps pulling you back. Why do I keep sinning? We've got to see the heart of Christ for unbelievers. We've got to see the heart of Christ for us. This is a picture. I was trying to find a picture of this. Mark chapter 9, when Jesus heals a boy possessed by a demon. And I'm just going to read the passage here. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or to water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. If you feel like that's where you're at today, we've got to look to Jesus. Look what it says here. This, by the way, is one of the best prayers in the Bible. The ESV says, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me believe. And Jesus loves to answer that prayer. Look what he does to the boy. He takes him by the hand. He picks him up. He heals him. And it says, he stood up. We've got to look to Jesus. Tim Keller says it this way. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Who are you looking to for salvation? It's the object of your faith that saves you. We see his heart to do the impossible for the one who believes, to heal and to save. So when you're fighting sin, don't look to your own strength. Look to the strength of Christ. Look to Jesus. And we have to hold on to that conviction to the very end. Now we can read this warning 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion with the gospel lens. Today, because you see Jesus, soften your heart to his voice as you did when you first believed. The message is not follow your heart. It's not work with all your heart. It's believe in your heart. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And because of the cross, we can. So Jesus didn't grumble against God and his word. He received it. His food was to do the Father's will. He was sinless. He was was so obedient. Obedience to death on a cross. And his unbelief didn't exist. He knew he would be vindicated. And he was in his resurrection. On the cross, Jesus was treated as a grumbler, as a sinner, as disobedient, as an unbeliever. And we get these big ideas, expiation, propitiation, justification, these big words. Expiation, Brian loves to hit on. Our guilt taken away, propitiation, God with a favorable demeanor toward us again. And justification, not only just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd always done everything right because I have come to share in Christ. The cross says guilt is gone. Wrath is appeased. Justice is done. Mercy is available. Grace is available. And you can be righteous by faith. And the author of Hebrews says, don't give that up. Because on the cross, that's where justice and mercy meet. It is where we see the soft heart of God. That Christ's heart stopped so that ours could start. And this is now our pattern in Christ. Our grumbling turns to thy will be done. Our sinning becomes sinning less with help from our community. Our disobedience becomes more and more obedience. We long to be further clothed. And one day we will be vindicated by our faith in him. I wanted to hit this hymn. It's called Lift Every Voice and Sing, authored by James Weldon Johnson. And I want to highlight this to remind us we belong to a greater body of Christ as well. And I'm going to butcher it as I read. I'm just going to read this like a poem, and I won't have the rhythm that I need, but I'm going to read this because there's something we can learn from this. It says, Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the presence has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our people sighed. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last, where the light gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, 
Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. True to our God, true to our native land. That when we think about nostalgia, Christian nostalgia is forward-facing. We are homesick. But we aren't longing to go back to something. We're yearning for our native land, which is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That one day, we are going to see him face-to-face. We're going to see the pigment in his irises and the pores on his nose. That's what we long for, the eternal today that we're headed to together. Our native land. So we've got to, in this today, fight for the greater love. We've got to remember how he saved us. We've got to trust his promises. We've got to guard our hearts. We've got to be in community and encourage one another. Great things are worth fighting for. We've got to resist sin's deceitfulness. Great things are worth fighting for, and there's nothing greater than the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we close, do you see Jesus? Has God given you that gift of the eyes of faith? Maybe today's the day that you can respond, say, I need that salvation. I need that Savior. I need Jesus. I'm tired of trying to save me. You can give your life to Christ today. And then are you fighting for the greater love of Jesus in heart-checking community? Are you actually, when we're in community, are you sharing your heart? It's easy to put up a facade. We have God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. We get to fight for the greater love. Loving Jesus is greater. So let's be true to our native land, and we can trust that Jesus will keep us in the shadow of his hand. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. We've got the cups in the back. If you're at home, grab some elements. And here at Hope, we don't ask that you'd be a member of Hope. Uh, You don't even have to be a member of a church. Uh, We just ask that you would put your faith in Christ. If you're someone that says, I see Jesus, I've trusted him, I put my faith in him, then take communion with us. And as we take it, I want to go back to the lyrics from that hymn where it says, we have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. That we are in Christ because Christ died for us, but because we are in him, now we can become like him. So let's not give that up. Let me pray for us. And we'll respond to God in worship. Father, I'm just going to pray this last stanza again. God, you are the God of our weary years. You are the God of our silent tears. You have brought us thus far on the way. You have brought us by your might into the light. So God, we pray, would you keep us in the path? Would you keep our feet from straying from the places where we met you? Would you keep our hearts from being drunk with the wine of the world to the point that we forget you? God, would you keep us shadowed beneath your hand and would we forever stand because of Christ and what he's done for us, true to you and true to our native land. Bring us safely to that day together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.